This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm your host, Bob Esben, and welcome back for another episode. Uh, I always say this, I'm always excited to have my guests on this podcast, but but today I'm really excited to have Don Peppers joining us. And Don, if you would, just introduce yourself to our listeners and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I'm Don Peppers. Um, uh, my business partner and longtime co-author Martha Rogers and I wrote the book, The One-to-One Future, 25 years ago and uh, written a number of books since then. Maybe, uh, I guess, a dozen, depending on how you count the reprints and so forth. So. We've sold about a million copies in 18 languages around the world. That's fantastic, Don. Uh, so, Don, I, I want to get into the book because I, I as my listeners know, I uh, reminisced about a, a book that you wrote and wrote it into a blog uh, article. And but before we get into that, I tell me a little bit about how you got into this in your in your career as you wrote this book 25 years ago. How did you get into it? Why? Why, why this? Sure. This part of the business world. Well, it uh, really began on a fluke. Uh, I uh, was a new business executive in the advertising business, uh, and uh, I booked speaking engagements for my agency. And the um, uh, the American Association of Advertising wanted a speaker on the impact of interactivity on marketing. And this was in like 1989, 88, 89. Uh, People thought interactivity would be uh, you're watching a commercial on your television set and a commercial comes on that you want to buy, you you could push a button and you get a coupon out of the set-top box. That was the idea around interactivity at the time. But my job was getting new clients for the agency, right? So I spent my mornings dialing for dollars. I'd go through the directory. I literally went through it alphabetically and called companies one at a time. And I connected on about one out of every uh, eight or 10 cold calls. And if I uh, if I got you on the phone, I'd chat with you. And I'd, I'd make notes on a, in a three-ring binder with your name on it. And then six months later, uh, your name would come up in my calendar and I would call you again. And say, hey Bob, how that? How did that? Uh, how that product launch go in South America? Was it? Uh, well, how'd it go? Um, you know, so I just wanted you to take my call. I wanted to have a relationship with you, right? Yeah. So that if I read in the trade press, in Ad Week or Ad Age, if I read that your account was up for grabs, I wanted you to take my call to be familiar with me, right? Hmm. That was the whole idea, um, and so. Um, uh, we got this speaking engagement and I accepted it for the agency and I went to the media director and he said, no, there's nothing you can say about interactivity. Everybody knows everything about interactivity. Nothing's gonna... And then the, and the assistant media director wouldn't do it and I had to do the speech. 
So I was, um, I went in the corporate library when they used to have corporate libraries and looked at all these books. Hang on a second. And, and, uh, um, uh, I looked at all these books and, and anyway, so I, I did a kind of a mental exercise. I thought when the day comes that a kid can talk back to Tony, the tiger on a Kellogg's frosted flakes commercial, what would Kellogg do with that feedback? The answer is they wouldn't do anything with it because it's not representative. It doesn't represent an audience. Mass marketers deal in audiences. But I was doing that all the time. I craved the feedback from the people I was calling so that they would remember me next and I could adjust my pitch. And I said in my mind that when interactivity happens, Every company, even consumer companies, will want to develop individual relationships with individual customers. And that was the insight that, um, that sort of led to the book. I was giving the speech somewhere, uh, um, uh, and uh, a woman came up and said, you know, you should write a book about this. And I said, I'm pretty, pretty damn busy. And she said, well, I'm a college professor down the road. Do you want to collaborate? So we started faxing back and forth. And that was Martha Rogers. And and uh, uh, she's been a business partner ever since. Wow, that's that's a that's a great story. But it and took us in, in that literally. I met Martha in 1990. Our book didn't come out until August 1993. Um, and, and and basically, we were writing a book at the time about technology. Uh, and uh, Martha had the insight to go try to find an agent first, and so. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember the author, John Naisbitt. He wrote the book Megatrends. This is oh, like, yes. <laughs> when we were kids, we had, we read this, right? right. And, and uh, so we found Naisbitt's agent, a guy named Rafe Segalen. He was based in Washington, D.C., and he agreed to take us on. And we, we must have written three books before we had a decent uh, cut. And, and, uh, and, and um, so he introduced us to Harriet Rubin at Doubleday. And Harriet said, well, here's the thing, um, uh, Don and Martha, if you guys write a book about technology and business, it's going to be outdated in five years. The technology will change. You have to write a book about what businesses will do because of the technology. Okay, so at the time, partly because of the speech that I was giving, and I kind of got a reputation as a um, uh, an expert in uh, uh, one-to-one thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was now I'd taken a job at Shiat Day, uh, and I was the head of their direct marketing unit. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. was Kurt Perkins Butler uh, was the Shiat Day's direct marketing unit, and one of our big clients was American Express. Now we ran American Express's Gold Card direct mail programs. Um, Ogilvy and Mather ran American Express's green card direct mail programs. If you were an American Express card holder at the time, this would have been 1990 or so, 1989, 1990, uh, and you, you gave up your green card to take a gold card, you would get two letters from American Express. One from us, the gold card people saying, hey, welcome on board. This is really, really great. One from the green card people. Oh, what do we do? How can we get you back? And it was nonsense to the customer. So 
my executives and I were in a boardroom think, trying to think about how, how can we possibly deal with this dilemma? And, uh, and finally, um, uh, one of us had a brainstorm. Wait a minute, wait a minute. American Express shouldn't divide its business up this way. They should divide its business up by customers. They should give us uh, a, a million and a half customers and give Ogilvy 20 million customers. And, mm-hmm. and we ought to own all the mail stream. Okay, we ought to, and and so I wrote that down. Yeah, manage customers, not products. Right? Um, wait a minute. Success is share of customer. It's not share of market. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Take products to customers, not customers to products. Right? E-commerce. Uh, and I wrote down like ten kinds of implications of this thinking. And I said, Hey, uh, I sent these off to Harriet Rubin. I said. This is what we're going to write about. And she said, great, here's $50,000. Go to it. And that was it. (laughs) That was how the book came to be. Yeah. But we were so lucky, Bob. We were so lucky because the book literally came out in August of 1993. And in December of 1993 or January of 1994, the first commercial web browser became available, Netscape. Oh, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was then that webmasters remember the term webmasters yes webmasters yes. around the world they had our book and and suddenly they had like uh, uh 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 they had marching orders for their their what they should do with their websites um and uh so so there you go we were very fortunate well and and th- that's exactly what my experience was at the time i was in direct mail and your book came out and it it seemed like overnight became the Bible that all of us were yep. reading it. I'm sure you presented at conferences and direct marketing that I attended and everybody sure. was talking about the book as the Bible. And so what's intriguing to me, uh, Don, is the reason I keep going back to the book is because it might be 30 years old, but it I'm not sure that we've come as far as we should have and we listened to everything in the book. If you look yeah. at it today, <clears throat> we're still facing challenges. Many organizations still can't seem to get it right. And so I'm yeah. curious as to, you know, what are you seeing? You wrote this book 30 years ago. Have we have we achieved what, what the objectives were? Or are we still working at it? Or what are your thoughts there? Well, um, <clears throat> what I say to people, I talk about uh, this all the time, uh, is that uh, this shift in the dynamics of marketing, <clears throat> it's not a destination. It's a journey in which you have to, it's a direction in which you point the business. Is your business pointed towards trying to find more customers for the products you have to sell? Or are you trying to find more products and services for the customers you're privileged to serve? Okay. So are you finding products for customers or are you finding customers for products? And that really defines the difference between these two types of uh, competition. In the mass marketing, mass production, mass distribution age, it wasn't practical. It, was, it would have been prohibitively expensive to treat different customers differently. No, you had a unique selling proposition that defined how you treated a product differently. You treated all customers the same. You simply try to find the customers for whom this product was the right product. So the whole idea 
of, of um, competing in this different dimension of customer centricity doesn't mean uh, that you're, you can't also be product oriented. You still want to find more customers. But in addition to finding more customers, don't you want to keep them longer and grow them into bigger and bigger customers? And, you know, uh, uh, so, so both mechanisms are still working. Uh, but increasingly, businesses today find it very, very cost efficient to, to treat different customers differently, one customer at a time, even if they have millions of them or billions of them. Google and Facebook, they treat each customer uniquely, individually. And mm-hmm. what I've been writing about all my life is what does it mean to treat different customers differently? It means that you have to worry about what the customer is experiencing with you, right? And uh, there are lots of different definitions of customer experience that my the definition Martha and I have used is it's the sum total of interactions uh, that a customer has with a brand. Uh, and all those words are important. It's interactions with a brand, not about a brand. That The, the mm-hmm. stuff that you read about uh, uh, um, uh, on, on uh, social media, for instance, uh, the comments that you might make or uh, others read about, that's not part of the customer experience in our, in our job. Stuff that people want to, that the business wants to know about for sure, but it's not technically part of the customer experience. The customer experience is how you deal with this customer versus that customer. That's what you have to manage. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, and basically what's happened is because of technology, because we can now interact with people inexpensively and we can cost efficiently uh, mass customize how we treat them and we keep a record of them in the database. We don't have to run to the file room to pull out a file folder to pull out to see what we've, we've, our history with them is. Now, the disciplines of marketing and sales and customer service have all been smashed together. The customer doesn't care whether they're dealing with the marketer or the salesperson or the service person. They just want their problem solved or their, their need met. Okay, so for them, it's just their experience. And that's what businesses have to begin thinking about. That's, that's, and, and they've begun thinking about it. They are doing it, yeah. And, I, and I'm very, very pleased. Martha and I are very pleased with the progress that businesses have made. Uh, I think customer service has dramatically improved over the last uh, 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Dramatically. So, Don, a couple of things that I want to follow up with you on. First yeah. is customer experience isn't new. You've been talking and writing about this for 30 years or more. Yeah. Even so, sometimes we, we maybe the terminology is new, but we're really talking about experience management. And, and you've been talking about that for 30 years. You and Martha have been talking about it for 30 years. I think that's technically true. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure when the, the term customer experience first came into vogue, but, but um, uh, I think it's a very useful term because it does capture the essence of what some people have talked about integrated marketing. Integrated marketing used to mean you integrate your marketing so that the customer doesn't see 
conflicting messages that you don't get the two different conflicting letters from American Express. That's not mm -hmm. integrated marketing. But uh, we think integrated marketing uh, has to do with um, uh, uh, making sure that your experience as a customer uh, is unified across the brand. It's uh, it's something that you don't see as nonsense or 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 mm -hmm. uh, that it's that it's um, uh, and and that's customer experience is about you know an integrated approach to treating different customers differently. And we've written lots of books uh, since we can uh, we've written about a dozen books and and they've been in eighteen languages uh, around the world. They've they we've sold uh, well over a million copies. We don't really know how many. Um, and um, you know so. You know, but they're they're all in a in a sense uh, lauding the customer experience, even though the, some of the early books don't use that term. Right. So, so Don, that that brings me to another. I've got a couple of points now as as we're talking here, but um, omni-channel, right? Mm -hmm. We hear we hear that term, multi-channel, right. omni-channel. You you even talked about integrated. So. One of the debates we hear often is, so, so a customer can interact with us, you know, through a, through a bot, through chat, through phone, yeah. email, all these different ways. And, and should the experience be the same within each of those channels? Uh, should it be different? What, what are your thoughts on, on how an organization can approach the experience with all of these different channels in which a customer may interact with us? Well, I think it should be connected. It, so that the customer in the customer's mind, it doesn't look like it's nonsense. Okay. Mm. Um, and like your American yeah. express example. Where yeah. The yeah. Would but think there's examples now. today. I'll give you an example today. Mm. Nine times out of 10. Uh, if you have to call in uh, to a company, let's say you call in it because uh, you, you call into a contact center because uh, uh, you were in, unable to, fix your problem online. Nine times out of 10, people use the online platform. First, they go on their mobile phone. Maybe they go on their computer to try to figure something out, but they can't do it, so they call. What's the first thing you have to do when you call in to the company? In almost every instance, you have to explain what you had spent the last 40 minutes doing on their website. They don't know about it. And yet it's a very simple thing to solve. Very simple. If you run a, an app, okay, if you have an app, a mobile app, the call me button should be within the app. That's number one, okay? Mm -hmm. So that I call you from the app, you can use computers then to show the agent what I was working on in the app. And the agent doesn't have to tell, oh, yeah, I see what you were doing, da, 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 right? Or uh, if they're on the website. Um, uh, you could have a uh, let us call you button, okay? A call me button. That's what Amazon does. When Amazon uh, receives a call, and they receive calls, right? Typically what they do is, why don't you let us call you? We can call you in uh, two minutes. Uh, and you push, the, you push the button and they call you. Guess what? They're calling you from within that. They've, they, they've, got, a, they've got a now, of, uh, they're connected to your session. Oh, yeah, I see, Mr. Peppers, you couldn't get this uh, refund. I'm sorry about that, blah, 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 right? 
There's another thing you could do. You could have a uh, uh, click to chat. Okay. Now a lot of companies do that, and click to chat is it's better than better than uh, not connecting at all. Um, there's another thing you could do. You could use a temporal phone number. A lot of companies do that. Um, you you want to call in to the company to because you're online and so you you click on uh, contact us and here's the 800 number. But that 800 number is unique to you. You're the only one who has that number. It's hmm. only your only you have that number for the next two hours, right? So when that number rings in, they know where your website was, what right. you did. The point right. is, these technologies they're not brand spanking new. They've <laughs> been around for years. So when most companies say, "Oh yeah, we're omni-channel," they're no, they're not omni-channel. That would be omni-channel when mm-hmm. the channels talk to each other. But most companies are not omni-channel. Uh, no matter how much they say, doesn't doesn't make you omni-channel by saying you are. Right, right. So true. Uh, and, or they or they minimize it to say, "Well, we offer all these different channels for which customers can contact us." Yeah, there's right. no proactive nature to it. So no, it's not integrated. It's, it's not that, integrated. see there. It's not integrated communication, and it's not an integrated experience for the customer. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now another question I have for yeah. you is lifetime value. You talk about it in the book. Um, it was very very popular, very trendy for a number of years. I thought very effective. It seemed to fall out of trend, favor, however you want to put it. And now I start hearing the term lifetime value coming back into the nomenclature of organizations and kind of getting a renaissance around lifetime value. Right. I've always been a believer in it. I think it really paints a picture. Uh, what are your thoughts? Am I am I sensing that trend correctly or not? Um, uh, I don't know. I haven't sensed it coming back into favor. Um, I can tell you this, uh, uh, as fellow veteran of the direct marketing business, okay, we yes. know lifetime value. Lifetime value is something that's a, a well-known thing. But for the first 50 years of its life in the direct marketing and direct mail business, lifetime value was about um, a fixed amount of value that was represented by the customer's lifetime of patronage. So if you could get this customer's patronage, it was worth this much money. But, you know, in, in 2002 or three, Martha and I wrote um, this book, uh, Return on Customer. And our argument was uh, that you can create value two ways with a customer. You create value when you sell something to them right now, okay? Uh, but you also create value when you change the customer's impression of you and you increase the likelihood that they will buy in the future. That value would be represented by a change in the customer's lifetime value, okay? So if, if, if I have a transaction with you and um, uh, I think your lifetime value is $100, uh, but because of my transaction, I think it becomes 10% more likely that you're going to buy in the next year or whatever. So your lifetime value is now $110, let's say. Um, so that interaction I just had with you created value, real value, 
but the cash effect of that value won't be realized until some point in the future. And I cannot really know exactly what that value is because I can't predict the future. Mm -hmm. But I get better and better at predict, at better and better at forecasting it well um, because I have better and better analytical tools. And, 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 I, and, and the more customers I have to compare you to and so forth, the more accurate I can get and so forth. So the fact is, our, our return on customer metric was analogous to uh, return on an investment. If I buy a stock worth $100 and I get a $5 dividend during the year, and at the end of the year, the stock is worth $110, my ROI overall was 15%, right? Mm -hmm. We said, if you have a customer worth $100 and you make a $5 profit, and by the end of the year, your model says you've increased their lifetime value to $110, your return on customer is 15%. That was the argument we made. And, uh, uh, and since lifetime value is the discounted net present value of the future stream of cash flow for your customers, your customer equity, the total lifetime values of all your current and future customers, that's fundamentally equal to the enterprise value of your firm. Take out all the assets and book value of, of, of existing assets, and that's the, that's the cash value. Uh, that's the uh, enterprise value, the going concern value of your business. So return on customer mathematically is equivalent to total shareholder return. Okay, so we wrote this book, okay? And it's the least selling book of all and yet one of the more consequential books. But our publisher warned us about it. She said, you put an equation in a book, you're going to reduce readership by 40% right away off the top. <laughs> and we did, and it happened, and you know, who, who knows. But I, I do think that uh, lifetime value is an underused, even today, an underused asset. Uh, but you, what you have to think about is not in terms of how to capture customers with greater lifetime value, or not just about that. You need to think about how to improve the lifetime values of the customers mm -hmm. you have, or how to avoid them denigrating, okay? Avoid, that, the, avoid their uh, um, uh, decrease, okay? Because lifetime value is an asset you can protect and you can, it, 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 can, it can be increased or, or decreased by your current actions. Don, one of the reasons that I hear companies say that they can't do lifetime value is because the calc to your point, to the calculation is too complicated, or we don't know the product costs. And, and I stop and I think, wait a minute, if you don't know those things, how are you running your business? So right. yes, those are key components of lifetime value. But to admit that you don't know those. Almost, I'm sorry, sorry. That's like, a, that's like a stockbroker saying I can't <laughs> buy stocks because it's all based on future value. And who knows what that is, that is about? Right. Well, guess what? It's, it's there. It's real. Uh, Myron Scholes, uh, an economist, who, late Myron Scholes, who uh, was one of the authors of the Black Scholes um, calculation for the future, the value of uh, stock options. He said a stock market is efficient, relatively efficient. He would consider it relatively efficient if at any point in time, um, the stocks within the market were no less than about 50% of their real value and no more than about 200% of their real value. That's mm. a reasonably efficient market. I think you should think of lifetime value the same way. I argue that companies ought to use proxy variables, okay? Um, 
there's a car wash in Florida, for instance, uh, that uh, here, what they do is uh, the cashier writes the license plate numbers down on all the cars that go through the car wash. And every month, the owner of the car wash posts a list of the top 50 customers by their frequency of license plates in the last year. The first employee who spots and calls out a top 50 license plate gets a $10 cash bonus every day. So all the employees have memorized the top 50 customers. Now, are those the 50 most valuable customers? Not technically, because it doesn't really differentiate between the basic in-out wash and the all-encompassing wax and that, right? right? But it's better than nothing. And, and it, what it helps companies do is focus on they're more valuable, higher priority customers. Treating different customers differently. That's what's important. Makes, makes total sense. So, Don, where are we at right now? What, what, what's the world of experience? We're emerging from supply chain crises and we're emerging from a pandemic and on and on. I, I don't have to list all the the issues we're facing, but what what are you thinking about these days and and write, perhaps writing about as well uh, with yeah. the state of where we're at? Well, I think that the COVID crisis uh, rapidly accelerated uh, the uh, spread of e-commerce, uh, home delivery, uh, even uh, store pickup, um, and um, it it. Uh, it has um, it's accelerated the volume of interactions, electronic interactions that customers have, consumers have with the products, uh, the companies they buy from. Uh, and it's brought a lot of companies into much closer contact with their customers than they had before. It's created a whole direct consumer wing of consumer products businesses uh, where, hey, if we're going to deliver directly to home and not put them in a retail sale, so why don't we do it? We don't have to wait for an intermediary to do that. Um, uh, and, and so it's, I think it's uh, accelerated the um, the desire uh, in businesses to be able to do a better job of managing each individual consumer's customer experience uh, with their product, uh, with the acquisition of it and the use of it and the return of it, if necessary, and the, and the adjustment of it, the service and so forth. Uh, and it's going to get, it's going to get better and better. I mean, uh, you know, we've got that rapid increase and, and, and suddenly um, uh, everybody and their uncle is uh, 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 D2C uh, has, has capability, Right. Right. Uh, so um, I, I'm very encouraged. And, and, and by the way, even though customer satisfaction ratings have remained static pretty much over the last 30 years, I think that's an issue of expectations. Uh, I think basically um, the, every time a, a really smart customer-centric company does something better, um, people's expectations of everybody goes up, Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and therefore, um, uh, yeah, but there's no question about the fact that customer service today is a heck of a lot better than it was when, 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 when we were in college, uh, like say, or, or even when we were in our thirties, you know, um, uh, it's much better than it was then. Uh, and it's getting better and better. 
Good. I'm encouraged. That's great to hear. That's a, that's an optimistic yeah. view that we like to hear. And as now, for my as for my writing, just yes, I, please. These these are the books that Martha and I have written ourselves. Okay, four four uh, versions of our textbook. The most recent textbook came out last year, 2022. Okay, managing customer experience and relationships. Okay, and these are our books in other languages uh, uh, around around the world. So we're very proud of it. Um, uh, but uh, uh, probably uh, not going to not going to write too much more these days. So I'm trying to <laughs> wind things down a little bit. <laughs> uh, Don, it's been uh, great having you on the podcast. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests this final question, and that's any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners. Ah. Uh, yeah, my uh, uh, if I if I had uh, some word of wisdom to share, I'd say pay attention to both types of value you can create with customers, the current value as well as the future value. Okay, mm-hmm. the value you won't realize until future dates, and just because you can't you can't measure it precisely doesn't mean it's not real. We know that lifetime value is real. Think of a customer you had 20 years ago uh, and all he's done. Well, 20 years ago, didn't he have a lifetime value? You could calculate it precisely now. Okay. Does that number existed 20 years ago? You just didn't know what it was. Okay. So that's what you have to think about constantly. Think of customers as stock prices. Okay. Excellent. Thanks, Don. Don Peppers joining the podcast today. We really have enjoyed this. And listeners, this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your network and stay tuned for this podcast, future episodes, as well as those of my colleagues on the CXFM radio network. Thanks again to Don Peppers for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, and good on you for doing this. You bet. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, and visit CXofM.org for more resources.